Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Verses 1-13. through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This morning... Sh- This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. First day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. You have us prepare for you to eat the Passover. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers and the flowers fade.
Um, we're going to dismiss kids in just a minute, but we also have mini Seder plates prepared. So as we're dismissing kids, we're going to pass out Seder plates. You won't need the plates for about 20 minutes from now, so just kind of put it in um, a safe spot. So first and second graders. On the rhythms and feasts, the celebrations, that sort of thing that, uh, that uh, come from Leviticus 23 or, or talked about in Leviticus 23, they're the, the rhythms that God set up for his people to celebrate him throughout the year, to remember who he was and remember the redemption and the great things that he had done for them. Um, I like this series in part because it's got a lot of tangible aspects to it. I mean, I, I, I like all sermon series, but, but I like this series for that particular reason. Uh, and I also like this series because I'm a rhythm guy. I'm a guy that sort of has patterns. I, I, make, uh, I make lists for every single trip I take. I don't use the same list over again. I create a new one because it's a different trip and, and that help, it helps to be organized. It helps to know even if I don't check off everything, I've gone through the list of things that I need. So I like that sort of thing. I like patterns. I like repetitiveness. I like balance and so on. And, and a part of me wonders if that came from the fact that uh, from the time I was young, I started playing drums when I was three years old. I had a cousin that I really admired at uh, three years old, third grade. Yeah, three is in the, in the definition there. Uh, I had a cousin that I really, really admired. He was four years older than me, and he was one of those guys that I just thought was the coolest in the world. So I, I, wanted, to be, I wanted to be like him. He played drums. I wanted to play drums. So in third grade, I kept begging for one, kept begging for one. And my parents got me uh, just a single snare drum. Uh, the problem was, was that my parents are the type of people that, that they're like, uh, you know, if, if you're going to have a drum, we're not just going to let you bang on it all the time. You can't just bang on the drum and make noise. You've got to take lessons. So thus started my life of music lessons in third grade, and that sort of took some of the joy out of it along the way. Uh, I mean, honestly, it did. We, we didn't do that with our kids. I'm not saying it's bad to give your kids music lessons. If that's, it, if that's your approach, that's awesome. But for us, what we did at our house is we have musical instruments everywhere. And the kids just started picking them up and playing them, and they sort of naturally developed musical interests. And they picking them up and playing them, and they sort of naturally developed musical interests and talent and so on. And so it worked well. But for me, I had the drudgery of going to a drum lesson every single week for an hour. Practice. 30 minutes a day, every single day. And it really, really did drain some of the joy out of it. The flip side of that is, is that it, it, it made me a reasonably good drummer. By the time I was a freshman in college, I had earned a scholarship to study music, a uh, drum scholarship to study music at a, at a little liberal arts college in the town that I grew up in. And in this particular college, uh, the, the jazz instructor was a world-renowned jazz trumpeter. He was, he was this important guy in the world of jazz. His name was Paul Smoker. Um, he was this guy that if you got asked to play with him, to play in his jazz band, it was a really, really big deal. And so when I entered this college, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be the guy that, that Paul Smoker came to, or however the process went. I, I, I don't know if it was actually him that did the asking. But I wanted to be the guy that, uh, that was asked to play drums in the college jazz band. And I, I thought that would be the coolest thing in the world. It would be an honor to play and to, to learn under such musician. The problem was, was that I was one of three drummers there. The other two were older than me, one by one year and one by two years, or one by three years, maybe. Uh, but um, I, I thought to myself, well, you know, I've been playing for so long. If they're, they're only a couple years older than me. I started younger, so 
I've had the same amount of time playing. You know, we've got the same amount of experience. And I earned a scholarship to be here, right? So that says something. That, that means that maybe, maybe I've got a chance at this. And my tryout went well. Uh, the director thought it went well. Paul Smoker thought it went well. I, everything went, went well. Everything went according to plan. And yet, when the time came to give the part to somebody, I was passed over for the older guy, the oldest guy of the three of us. He'd played in it the years before, and I get it, and so on. I'm not bitter about it by any stretch of the means. Uh, although I do think I deserve to be. Anyway, no, that's not it. Um, I got passed over for it. And if you've ever been passed over for something, you know that that's really, really disappointing, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't feel good to think, oh, I want this. I, I, I earned this. I deserve this. I can, I can do this. And then to have someone say, no, we're going we're gonna to go this direction. Whether it's like a, a, a scholarship, a college, or, or a job promotion, or whatever it might be, it, it kind of stinks to get passed over most of the time. There are times when being passed over is not such a bad thing, right? I can't get this mic to stay in the right place. There are times when it's not such a good thing, or it is a, it's a good thing to actually be passed over. Think about it for a second. Um, if you get asked to do something really difficult or dangerous at your job. Maybe your job doesn't require any danger, I don't know. And, and, but some jobs do, you know, electricians, things like that. Hey, going up, going, the guys that work on the, uh, the, the tall uh, towers, the radio towers and so on, those, those are dangerous jobs. And, and if you get asked to do something particularly dangerous, it might be good to be passed over. It might be good to say, hey, you know what, the other guy got it. I'm okay with that. And that's fine. Sometimes it's good to be passed over. Sometimes it's a good thing to not get exactly what might be coming to us. Take Israel, for example. Right? If you're not familiar with Israel's story, back in the end of Genesis, Israel is living among the Egyptians in Egypt. Uh, There are a number of reasons why they're living there, but the main reason, or at least sort of stems from the fact that there was a famine in their land, and there was no food. And so they wound up in Egypt, where there was plenty of of food. During that time, we're told that God's people multiplied and grew greatly to huge numbers of people, huge numbers for that time at least, huge numbers of people, so much so that when a new pharaoh came into power in Egypt, he became worried that the Israelites were so numerous that they indeed might take over. So, what do you do when you think that? Well, you enslave people, right? That's, that's what he did. He enslaved them. He put them into slave labor. They remained there for 430 years, enslaved in Egypt. And it wasn't until 430 years later that God sent his servant Moses to advocate for his people, to say, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me, so they can be my people. It's not right that you enslaved them. Let my people go. Yet despite all the things that God did through Moses, despite the many signs and wonders that he showed, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Exodus 7.13 tells us, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said would happen. As a result, God sends many plagues, many, many plagues, ten plagues to be exact. I'm not going to cover all ten of those, I'm just going to talk about one. 
But suffice to say that the first nine, during the first nine uh, plagues, God had sent those plagues in order to soften Pharaoh's heart, to change Pharaoh, to, to get him to relent and to let God's people go. And after each one, Pharaoh said, nope, not going to happen, not going to do it. And so what we find out is in Exodus 11, God tells Moses that he will send one final plague. God will pass through the land of Egypt. He will strike down every firstborn in the land, and no one, no one will be spared, not man nor beast. No one except Israel. Israel will be spared, whom God promised to pass over. It's a good thing to be passed over sometime, right? God prescribes his Passover for his people. He instructs them that on the 10th day of the month, as Amy just read, the 10th day of the month, each house should take a one-year-old male lamb without blemish from their flock. They're going to keep it for three days, and on the 14th day of the month, at sundown, they're going to sacrifice it. They're going to take the lamb's blood, some of the lamb's blood, and put it on the door frames of their homes so that God's judgment will pass over them. And by his mercy, he will deliver them from their slavery in Egypt. Now, literally, the word, uh, the Hebrew word for Passover, that's what it means. It means to, to leap over something, to pass by it, to skip over it, to miss it. In Israel's case, the final plague passed over them because God accepted the blood of the sacrificed lamb on their behalf. God accepted the blood of the sacrificed lamb so that they didn't have to sacrifice in the same way, so that his judgment would skip over them. The lamb died in the place of each of the family's firstborn. In recognition of God's great mercy and grace, God uh, tells them, he instructs them, that they are to celebrate this Passover every year during the first month of Nisan. Not to be confused with the car, different spelling, right? In conjunction with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're to celebrate it to remember the redemptive work of God, to remember exactly what it is he had done for them, that he had saved them, that he had passed over them so they, they didn't have to pay the sacrificial price, and he had saved them from their slavery in Egypt. And thus faithful Jews continued celebrating all the way through Jesus' day. And so many years later, Jesus perfects the Passover for his people. Again, as we read, uh, actually, a little bit before what the passage that was read. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which wasn't called Palm Sunday at the time, but later, that's what we call it, uh, there was a great deal of fanfare surrounding his coming, right? People were sing singing and, and praising him and, and raising their hands and, and laying down their cloaks and laying down, laying down uh, uh, palm branches and, and, and crying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, praising God as Jesus comes in. A great deal of fanfare. The fanfare surrounded or, or came from the fact that the people, to a great extent, believed that he would be the one who would save them from the oppression of the Romans in much the same way that God had delivered his people from the Egyptian slavery. But ultimately, they realized that that was not the reason Jesus came, and quickly, opposition grew against him. By midweek, three days later, by midweek, opposition has grown against him. Jewish leaders are plotting to kill him. The Roman leaders are worried that there'll be this possible insurrection by all the Jews that are flocking in to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's in that context the disciples approach Jesus 
and they ask where and what they're going to do for the Passover. And Jesus says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover, right? As a child, I, I, always, I, I always heard this passage read, um, and, and I always thought to myself, wait a second, they just went and picked a random guy and said, hey, <laughs> there's, this, there's, not, you know, there's no name mentioned in anything. I, there's no exact reason given why there was no name mentioned, but, but the certain man indicates that there was a specific man, or at least seems to indicate that there was a specific man that Jesus was sending them to. So they go to the specific man, they, they do exactly as Jesus instructed, and it all works out. That evening, they find themselves celebrating the Passover together. It's likely that the disciples believed at that very time that this Passover would be a normal Passover. Be like every other Passover that they had celebrated in their lifetime, every other Passover they had celebrated with Jesus. There was no reason for them to believe otherwise. But what happens is Jesus takes it and sort of turns it upside down. He turns it upside down, and and this is where he says... Or this is where Matthew tells us. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of the sins, for the forgiven, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, you will not, I will not eat it, not drink. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it anew in my Father's kingdom. He turns it upside down. He takes what was what was should have been, or what what they thought was going to be this normal celebration of what God had done in the past, and he brings it into the present. He brings it into the now. And he makes it something greater. Instead of speaking the words of Exodus 12 as the disciples expected, this time Jesus declares, I am the lamb. I'm the lamb that will be sacrificed. I'm the one who will redeem God's people. During Moses' time, the Passover reminded Israel of God's redemption. It pointed them to a future greater redemption, that God was their redeemer and he would do great things to save them to bring them and to maintain them, to keep them as his people. But at this Last Supper, Jesus tells them that that time had come. That future redemption that was coming, that future redemption that they expected, that was now, and he was the one who would do it. His shed blood would replace the shed blood of the lamb. His sacrifice would be superior to the sacrifice of the lamb because it would redeem God's people not just from a one-time event, not just from a, from a terrible person, but it would redeem God's people from their own sin, from the sin that kept them separated from God. As John the Baptist foretold in John 1.29, Jesus was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Paul, Paul declared that Christ became our Passover lamb. He's the one that sacrificed himself so that we could be freed from our slavery to sin. And thus Jesus perfected the Passover for us, his people. 
and that his sacrifice was superior to the lamb's sacrifice. It was superior to all other sacrifices. Any other sacrifice that would come afterwards, it was better. It wouldn't just save us from that one time, but it would save us from God's judgment that was rightly laid out against the sin of man. As a result, whenever we celebrate communion, just as we say each week, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, we are, in essence, celebrating the Passover together. But a new Passover. A Passover that brings in all who trust in Christ and believe in his salvation that he offers. So today we're going to do something different. I was going to say earlier, I'll keep it short today, but then I thought Neville might say something about me being short, so that was, I, I left out of it. We're going to do something a little bit different. I, I, I'm going to leave here, and the Gables are going to come up, and they're going to talk about the traditional Passover feast, what it looked like. And after that, we're going to go straight into communion. And, that, and, and I, I want you to see the continuity here. We're celebrating a feast together, a feast that celebrates how God, his judgment passes over his people because he sacrifices on their behalf. You guys ready? morning and welcome to the table and to our Seder. Now we are going to begin uh, again similar to last week uh, with reciting the Shema and if you remember from last week the Shema has four parts or our Shema has four parts. Uh, the first one we are going to say with our right hand over our eyes in, in, uh, in, in respect, in reverence uh, and, and to concentrate. Uh, and the second part is a uh, response to that first proclamation. The second part is said quietly as if we've stolen it from the angels. And the third and fourth parts are our uh, uh, commands, the greatest commandments that we shall love. And so let us begin. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Baruch Shem Kavod Malkuto Leolam Vayed. Blessed be the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Vayahavta et Adonai Elohecha, Bechol Levacha, Uvechol Navshecha, Uvechol Meodecha. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very good. Seder, which means order, is the development of the structure the Israelites have followed in the annual Passover feast celebration. It is a significant way that the Jews are being obedient to God's command to keep and commemorate the feast each year from generation to generation. Throughout this feast, the story of God's redemption of his people from slavery is told from one family member to the other, drawing them together as his chosen people 
and a community of faith. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus was celebrating a Passover Seder with his disciples. As we explore the elements of a common Seder, you will see a connection between this meal and the story played out at the Last Supper. Christ uses the main elements of the Passover Seder to establish the new covenant and introduce the Lord's Supper, revealing the ultimate purpose and meaning of the Passover feast as a celebration of not only the redemption of God's people from slavery, but the redemption of man from sin and death. So we tell the story each year to our children and grandchildren of how God rescued his people once from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt and the once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The service this morning will be merely a taste of what a full Seder usually is. Our hope is that this service will be an encouragement to you and motivation to celebrate a Passover Seder in your homes with family and friends. Amy and I began celebrating an annual Seder 20 years ago. And I know what you're saying, oh, but you look so young. (laughs) That first year, we sat reclining on the floor watching the Prince of Egypt and stumbling through what we thought we were supposed to do and say. Yet each time we celebrate the richness of our time together and the meaning of the service seems to grow much more full. With a look toward growing together as a community and building our identity in Christ as a people who celebrate deeply and enjoy one another's company, Refuge Church desires to encourage this celebration of this meal in homes as part of our Easter celebrations each year. When we gather together as smaller groups in homes to celebrate Seder, there will be many more opportunities for everyone participating to follow along in the Haggadah, or the telling, reciting joint prayers and reclining like Jesus' disciples. Although there are common elements to include in every Seder, the host and leader of the Seder is welcome to add a personal touch to the service, so make it your own. So let's get started. One of the acts that traditionally signifies the beginning of the Seder is a ceremonial hand washing. On the surface, it's just proper hygiene. Clean hands, full hearts, can't lose. (laughs) On a deeper level, this preparation of our hands for eating is a symbolic reference to the preparation of our hearts for the feast. This night, we will continue to reference our setting as in the evening to continue the tradition. This night is different than all other nights. As we wash our hands, we recognize with respect the depth of this feast and what it means. At Messiah's Seder, Jesus replaced the simple hand washing with a washing of his disciples' feet. There was no doubt that this act grabbed the attention of the twelve. And by doing this, Jesus let his disciples know that this Seder is going to be different than other Seders. There are two major elements of every Seder. And carried through into our communion meal, the wine and the bread. The wine in its base symbolism, we drink the red wine this night to remind us of the blood. The blood of the sacrifice that was spread upon our door frames and the blood of the sacrifice that was paid at Calvary. We drink deeply 
and deliberately as a reminder that our celebration is a mixture of jubilance and sorrow. On all other nights, we drink together with a short proclamation to the king. But on this night, with a more keen awareness of the sacrifice, we can add and worthy the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor, wisdom, and power. We will pour four cups during the Seder. These four pourings represent the four I will statements God makes in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The first cup is the cup of freedom or sanctification. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The second cup is the cup of deliverance and plagues. I will deliver you from slavery. The third cup, the cup of redemption. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth cup, the cup of praise, thanksgiving, and completion. I will take you as my people and be your God. So we pour the forced cup, symbolically. The cup of freedom, sanctification. During the home service of the satyrs, our experience with the various elements will be sprinkled with prayers and blessing and recitations that help move us throughout the telling of the story. And for the sake of brevity, most of those sprinklings will be absent from this Seder. The unleavened bread. The Seder as the Passover celebration kicks off the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the commands given by God in Exodus 12, there are two main acts in this feast. One, remove all the leavening agents from your home. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.